Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here today. I had the opportunity to be up here last week to introduce one of my friends, Shankar. Uh, my name is Mike Carter. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the elders here at the church. And I am, I'm a life that's been changed uh, by God. An ordinary guy that God got a hold of at the age of 16 um, when somebody shared the gospel with me, just like in the video, it was, it was a young person, a peer that shared with me, and then it was a young guy that was in college that took the time to share with me and take, him, take me under his wing and disciple me and teach me the way of Jesus. And I'm here because people invested into me, um, because people considered God's mission in their life um, as something that was of utmost importance, so they took the time to share with me. And, uh, you know, out of that, God called me, and I became a pastor for 30-some-odd years, was a local church pastor, and then call, God called me out of that to, uh, to be a missionary, a full-time missionary. Uh, now I travel all over the world. I lead an organization. I'm the chief bottle washer, really, of, of uh, this organization called Concentra Global, um, and I, I've been to over 60 countries the last couple of years. Um, maybe growing up in a military family made it so that I was a little bit more uh, it was more conducive, and I had a little bit more adventure and desire to do those things and have fun with it. But uh, whatever it is, God has uh, called me, and he's worked in me, and he's worked through me. And, and the good news is that he's called each one of us here today, and he desires to work in each one of us and through each of us today. Uh, like I said, this organization that I had up is called Concentric. We're, we say that we're a Jesus-centric disciple-making organization. We're focused on, on equipping leaders to live out the Great Commission, to share the love of God, to share the good news, the gospel um, to, with all the nations. And my role in the organization is to do equipping, to do equipping of leaders. Um, we're, we're an alliance of 12 organizations across the globe. Uh, we're in about 130 countries doing equipping. What's that equipping look like? Uh, we come alongside leaders. We train them in, in how to make disciples and make disciples and how to create movements of disciple-making. And we say that a, a, we define a movement is where you see five generations of Christians, okay, in multiple locations. We say that's a disciple-making movement. And our goal is to see disciple-making movements in every nation, every tribe, every language on the face of the earth. Right now in about 130 countries, about 100 of those countries have disciple-making movements. Or by 2030, we're praying that God would have that in 153 countries across uh, the globe. And so I get to serve in that organization. I get to travel. I get to go around and spend time with people like my predecessor, Dan, there. And I'm just going to zip through these pictures and do equipping. This is our team. Remember Paul mentioned a couple weeks ago that he was in Ephesus and um, in, in, um, in Turkey uh, with Therese and I, he and his wife, uh, uh, Jen were, were there with us and this is our African team this is our team J-Life team in Africa from I think about 30 countries 50 leaders that are making disciples and make disciples and and I get opportunity to go to to South Africa and other countries in Africa and just encourage these heroes of the faith these people that are they're living out the gospel in these places and got time uh, with them in, in Ephesus and, and with leaders like Michelle here next to me and Diego that are uh, some of our leaders that are heading up a ministry um, in, um, in Latin America called Singular where they, they're like-minded in us saying that, that our call is to make disciples and make disciples, to create disciple-making movements to the nations. And so I get to invest into them. They started a new organization about uh, 
just a couple of years ago, six years ago, they started that organization and they're in 14 Latin American countries and I've been there and seen their work and seen what God is doing there in their work. Um, and I get to go to crazy places that, you know, we don't even know exist in the face of the planet. This is Liechtenstein. I just like saying Liechtenstein. Isn't that a cool thing to say? Liechtenstein. It's right next to Switzerland here with a couple of our leaders. Bill that's holding, has got his hands on the sign there. Bill is on our executive team. He's also the executive vice president of church planting for crew um, in North America and Oceania. And he seconded to us giving about 70% of his time to go out and equip uh, ministry leaders to make disciples and make disciples, indigenous leaders. We're investing in indigenous leaders and movement makers across the globe and, and, and that's, the, that's the privilege, the opportunity that I get to be a part of and these are just a bunch of our leaders. Um, a couple of guys have been going with me to Iceland. It's the least Christian country in all of Europe, less than one-tenth of one percent, a lot of statistics say. Our Christians, 350,000 people, less than a tenth of 1% are professing Christians. More, there are a little bit more that go to church, but not many. But one of my friends from India on the far right and a friend from the UK, um, and there's a friend there from Burkina Faso who's been a pastor there for 19 years, are investing in a, a group of business men and women that are saying, we want to see our people come to know Jesus. We want, and so they're planting a church in Reykjavik and we're trying to invest into them. Last week, I had the opportunity to introduce you to one of my friends, Shankar, and he shared his story, a really compelling story, a moving story. This is Shankar with his wife, Esther. He didn't get to share a lot of pictures, so I just thought I'd share. If you can see, this is the slums where he grew up, Kuf Parad slums, and you can see the blue tarps in the back. Those are people's houses that are on stilts and and. Everything around them, around the houses is just refuse. It's the garbage that the monsoon rains just kind of collects there and deposits. And when the rains come in, it floods through the entire slum, um, sometimes raising it to the level of, of where Shankar's standing. They're up to his neck, okay, of water with all the trash uh, coming into the slums. It's one of a few slums in Mumbai. And these are just pictures in the slums, some young girls that were teaching us how to make rotini bread as I was watching rats run um, around through her feet and all around as they're making the bread on the, on the ground. And you can just see the trash in the houses covered with tarps and just an endearing people, a beautiful people. This is the Rohini slums in, in, um, in another city in New Delhi that I've walked through where they live on top of a garbage heap. Um, and, you know, Shankar and others in our ministry uh, provide education to kids. Here's a, a, a lovely uh, young lady that got up and sang a song for us and taught, taught us our, our alphabet when I was um, in her classroom there. Um, and then some others that sang some songs for us um, when we visited them. He's got 500 kids in, a, in, in his schools there. You know how much it costs to do a school for 100 in, in the Mumbai slums? $18,000 a year. That includes a teacher's salary, um, food, a, a meal for them every day, a book bag, um, and um, a classroom education, tutoring, and an assistant in the classroom. 18,000 bucks a day. Man, talk about an ROI, the return on investment, changing those kids' lives, okay? I, that's why I do what I do. But the truth is uh, that, and here, here's some of the uh, some of the women working in the fish markets that he talked about. You can see the little girls there sorting uh, through shrimp, okay, because, because, uh, They've got to make money for food for their families, okay? And so they make 3 to $5 a day doing this work. Um, but, you know, the truth is with all of this, all that Shankar does and others do 
around the globe and making disciples and make disciples or investing in compassion. If all we did was help them physically, it would end here, okay? But, but our desire is not just to help them with uh, gaining an education or, or working uh, like some of our leaders in anti-sex trafficking um, or, or um, uh, giving uh, women like the ones in this, on the screen here right now um, a, a skill, okay, these women are, are being trained in tailoring and seamstress and so they can make money for their families. But if that's all we give them, those physical things for the here and now, then it ends here. Shankar is convinced, I'm convinced that, that we, we need to do those things. We need to meet people's physical needs when they have them, but we also need to share the good news. We've got to share the gospel with them. We need to meet their eternal needs. We need to point them to something that's lasting, that transcends all of the all of the, the hell that we experience in this world, all of the terrible situations that brings life that's eternal, that no matter what happens to us here, we can, we can be with him in eternity and we can point other people to the hope of Christ. And so I get the privilege to be a part of that and to work with people like Shankar. And it's because of that, uh, you know, we're, this is missions, this is missions week. And Paul, I mean, said in the last service, he, had, he has terrible... Um, judgment and asking people like me to speak so I apologize for his behavior asking me to be here to share with you today but you know God uses ordinary people so we're going to look at the word of God today we're going to open up uh, Acts chapter 2 and and we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 I'm going to read one verse verse 8 in chapter 1 but before we do that I'm just going to ask that we just prepare our hearts for what God wants to say to us um, through his word, what he wants to say to me and to you this day. And we're going to do that like Paul has us do every week. We're just going to place our feet on the ground, close our eyes, if, and get in a listening position and just say, God, speak to me today. Uh, get rid of the other distractions and, and let me hear what you have to say for me today. And I'll just close after a couple moments. Father, we're a hurried people. We're a people that have all sorts of demands on us. We've experienced a lot of things through this week, but right in these moments right now, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your word. We desperately need you in our lives. We need your living word to invade our lives and and to remind us of the new life that you give us, the hope that you give us in Christ. And so, Father, wherever we come from today, whether we're uh, people that are discouraged, people that are angry, people that uh, have doubts people that are just searching out faith for the first time or we've been Christians for many years wherever we come from today father we just pray that you'd speak to us through your living word now in Jesus name amen so the book of Acts one verse in chapter one and then I'm going to go on into chapter two but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tons as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tons as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from 
every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Perithians, Medes, Alamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pergia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling our own, in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m. It's interesting he says it that way, isn't it? It's like, in other words, if it were later in the day, what would be happening? I don't know, okay? But that's what he says. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall see dream, dream dreams. Even on male, and ser- male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word to us today. You know, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to take a group of high school students, about 20 of them too, on a mission trip. And uh, we were in Chicago for, for the week, being equipped to, to live out their faith and share their faith with their peers. And, and we had a little bit of free time one afternoon, and so we decided that we'd go to the Sears Tower and, and uh, go to the top and the sky deck and be able to see the city below. Have you ever done something like that? You ever been to the Sears Tower? Pretty cool spot to go. Um, and it's memorable to be up there and to, just to see the city of Chicago from that spot. But just as memorable for me that day was the fact that I had one young guy along named Rob, a friend of mine who was also a pastor, asked if I could take this young guy along with us on this mission trip to Chicago. You could say maybe big mistake that I said yes, okay, because Rob was unruly. He's this, he's full of energy, a good kid, but full of energy, distracting. He loved to become the center of attention. He was an attention grabber, and he, I mean, the whole time he's doing all these different things to kind of take control of the situation and be at the center. When we're up on the top of the Sears Tower at the sky deck, he's running around on the sky deck, okay, in circles, screaming out, you know, weird things, and and the security's like, stop. 
stopping him, saying, either you need to stop or you need to get out of here. Um, you look like a teenager. Who, who are you with? And I'm like, not me. He's not, I don't know who, who he is. He's not my kid. Um, and then when we get on the elevators and we go down to the lobby, we're getting ready to exit the building. And he exits out of the, out of the elevator first. And he runs to the only set of doors in front of us for everybody to get out into the streets of Chicago. There's these rotating doors. And he gets in the rotating doors. And and he just, he runs around. He takes the doors and he's running, spinning the doors, woo, 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 going in circles. And he's looking at everybody laughing, <laughs> like with this evil, cynical laugh, like I've got you all under my wing, under my control. And you're not, he, like he shut down tourism in Chicago in those moments, okay? And he's amused and he, he loves the power. He loves the moment, but nobody else is amused. Nobody else likes the fact that he's in control. People are getting extremely irritated. And again, I'm like, whose kid is this? He's not mine. Somebody needs to call security and get rid of this guy, you know? Um, power, power can feel so good. We love it, but we're also afraid of it because we, we, we've seen what it can do to us and what it can do to other people. It can consume us and it can often corrupt us, just like it did with my friend Rob there in the Sears Tower that day. But is it possible, is it possible for power to come down upon us from above and not consume us and not corrupt us and, and, and not ruin us? And as we read the book of Acts, as we look at Acts chapter 2, we see that the answer is yes. That the power of God, the power of God's spirit and, the, and, his, and of his energy and his purpose came down in a marginally educated, in a marginally gifted, ordinary people. It did come down. And in fact, when it came down, when the spirit of God came down, when God's power came down, it transformed the Roman Empire. It transformed civilization. It transformed time from there on out. It changed the course of history. And it didn't consume people. It actually liberated them. And it emboldened them. And it took them into the presence of God as his people. And I want us to look at the implications of this Pentecost, of God's spirit for us today, of this day in the book of Acts, what it means for us today. But in order for us to understand the richness of this scripture, for us to understand the richness of what's going on here in this scripture, it's important for us to be familiar with the history of Pentecost and what it meant to God's people in that day. You see, for the first century Jew, Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. And, and it was, it was a, a farm, an agrarian harvest festival where, one, where the farmers, where we would be bringing in the first sheaves of wheat from our crops and we'd bring them in as an offering to God in part, but also partly as an expression of, of, of our desire to see in a prayer for him to bring in the rest of the fruits of our harvest safe and plentiful. But for the Jew, Pentecost and Passover were not just about, they weren't, they weren't just a part of a festival. You see, these celebrations awakened in them an echo of a great story in their past, the story of God's work in their history, which dominated their thoughts, the story of, of, of the exodus from Egypt and from the plight and from the oppression of Pharaoh. When God's promise to Abraham of rescuing his people was realized and fulfilled. You see, Passover was a time when the lambs were sacrificed and the Israelites 
We're saved from the avenging angel that came and slew the firstborn of the Egyptians. And off went the, the Israelites that, that very night, passing through, across, through the Red Sea and into the Sinai Desert. And, and 50 days after this, Passover, then came Mount Sinai when Moses receives the law from God. And so in other words, Pentecost is the 50th day isn't just about the first fruits that marked the beginning of the harvest for the Jews. It's also about God giving us his redeeming people this new way of life. He gives his people this new way of life. And, and all these things would have been dominating the people's thoughts as they listened to Peter talk here. The, the story of the exodus from Egypt and of, and, and of all these things would be coming back to them. And so in other words, Pentecost is the, is the 50th day, as the 50th day, isn't just about the first fruits that marked the harvest beginning for the Jews. It's also about God giving his redeemed people this new call. And Luke as the, as the author of the book of Acts, the, the writer can legitimately assume that his first century listeners, that his audience would know all of this about the first fruits. And Jews from all over the world, we're told in this passage, are in Jerusalem. So Luke can more or less take for granted that his, his audience understood the backdrop and the story of the apostles being filled with the Spirit here and then going out to bear witness of Jesus, of the resurrected one, and then many people being won over to the faith in Jesus in that day, we're told in that very first day, it says later on in the account, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. And when we look closely at how some of the Jews told the story of the exodus, of the law, or of the law being given on that first Pentecost at Mount Sinai, when Moses went up the mountain, he came down with the law. And then we look here, to, Jesus went up the mountain and he fulfilled the law. He took our place for violating the law. And on this second Pentecost in the book of Acts, Jesus went up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and, and then he comes down not with a written law on carved, carved on tablets of stone, but with a dynamic energy of the written law written on the hearts of of his followers, those that put their trust in him and receive the gift of the Spirit and start to live into a new way of life. You see, Luke, Luke is keen that we grasp the richness of this all. There's a lot going on here in this. There's a lot of context in it. But it's important that we don't just get tangled up in all the theology and the history because we don't want to miss what God's spirit has for us today as his people. You see, God intends that we would know the richness of the resurrected Jesus and his spirit in us personally today. And, and what we see here is that the God of the Bible not only wants to us to have an awakening, a cognitive awakening in the 60 trillion or so neuronal connections in our brain and kind of, you know, get it cognitively, okay, in our thoughts. He also, he wants us to experience his, his spirit and his power personally in our lives, our daily lives. 
And in this passage, we see the imagery of wind and fire being described in the power of his spirit, this powerful experience that the disciples had in that day is it pointed to the presence of God and his spirit coming down. And if we read through the book of, of Acts, we can observe that there are many other ways that God's not limited to phenomenon like these. There's other ways that he shows up for his people. In, in Acts and in the lives of God's people then and today, we can see many instances where he comes through a gentle breeze or a soft and quiet conversation. He can choose if he's going to come with a might in a mighty work and a mighty wind or if he's going to come in that gentle breeze. But, but we can mark his words that what we do know is this, that those who ask for the Spirit receive the Spirit. That's what Jesus tells us in, in, in Luke chapter 11. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so if we ask, he gives us the spirit. One of the most ancient prayers of the, of the early church and one of the most profound prayers is, come Holy Spirit, come. What we pray and we say, come Holy Spirit, come. We desperately need you in our presence. We desperately need you to guide us, to fill us with your power, with your strength. But, but let's look at what the Spirit offers to us today. As we look at this passage, I think there's a couple of practical principles. There's several, but I'm gonna point to three today. What it means, when we put our faith in Jesus and the power of God comes on us, his spirit comes into us, what does this mean for us today? And the first thing is this, that God's spirit, when God's spirit enters in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter two, we see that God's spirit brings oneness and unity and equality, or what we call often Christian community. Notice in verse one that it says they were all together in one place, and then notice later in the text it, it mentions that several peoples and languages all, are all together in communion. There, there's a oneness that goes on. And this is an obvious tie back to Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember the story there where there's disunity and there's scattering of God's people because they're at the Tower of, of Babel and humanity tried to independently leverage power okay, for their self-glorification. They tried to take over the doors and spin and say, I'm in control of my world. I'm in control of my, of my life and my destiny. And, and their efforts were foiled. But now here in Acts chapter two, God's spirit reverses Babel. He unifies his people again as one in the power of his spirit. And so God's spirit is sent as a gift after Jesus' ascension given to us this new creation of the church, a new community where heaven and earth come together and God's people are gathered, not scattered. And there's this oneness in the Acts church that we see here. Scattered in many languages at Babel, but now gathered together in unity with many languages as one people. And that's what we see happening here. And God's spirit isn't just poured out on the extraordinary or the gifted. God's spirit is poured out on the common also, the common everyday person. What Joel foretold is exactly what took place here. A new community where Jews and Gentiles, where men and women, where slave and free, all come together as one. All one in Jesus. And for the world outside, 
For the world outside it declared that the life and the death and the resurrection of the long-awaited promised Messiah had come. Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a fresh sociological impossibility that turned the world upside down through God's timeless message being lived out in his people, being unified as one, and his message going out in word and being embodied in them. And, and listen, they were unified. But listen, folks, your identity in the gospel, your identity as a Christian actually demotes your status and everything else in your life. Your nationalism, your ethnicity, your political party are all below the fact that you're being a part of the redeemed people of God. The other things become secondary. They're an important part of your story. Cretan, Egyptian, Latino, Asian. They're to be lived into and appreciated. But they're subservient to the fact that we are a part, that you are brought into the family of God, that you are, we are the church. And the most important thing about you, if you're a Christian, is that Christ has sealed you, that Christ lives in your life, that the power of God is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, and he's changed you, and he's called us as a new community, different than what's in the world. And maybe, maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know, you, you, you listen to what I'm saying and you see what's going on in this passage. This story of Jesus and his spirit sounds like a, a distant, like an Aesop fable. It's hard to believe it as an historic event centuries ago, let alone as something relevant to us today. Is that you? You're skeptical of what you see here? If so, then consider this. Where else can you, where, where else can you go? where you can find doctors and custodians, school teachers and store clerks, attorneys, young and old, gathering as friends, white, black, Latino, Asian, all gathering together as one, as a family, not, not just as friends, but as close friends, breaking bread together, having meals together, loving each other, encouraging each other, doing life together, weeping with each other, praying for each other's children and celebrating victories together. You see, that's the church. You wanna see that God's alive? You wanna see that this truth is alive? Then look at God's church when it's functioning the way it's supposed to. That's the gift that God gives us. And Christians, this is why Jesus says, by this will men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, oneness is a powerful apologetic. It's a powerful testimony to the work of the living Savior in a world that's divided, a world that's angry, a world that desperately needs to experience something different, a world divided by selfishness and pride and war and disunity. And that dovetails into the second principle here. And that's this, that God's Spirit gives us as his people as followers of Jesus, he gives us a clear mission and a clear purpose. You see, salvation is the gift of his spirit on us, but it's not just for us to experience personally. It's not just for our personal satisfaction. Notice what's happening here in this passage. They began to declare in verse 11, the mighty deeds of God, and the Greek word there for mighty deeds means the mega deeds of God. I mean, this is a big deal. And what, what they had proclaimed was that Jesus Christ 
was risen from the dead, the mega deed of God has happened. He's come. And, and Peter says in verse 32 and following, he says that God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has, re- he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, That's the mega deed that they declare. That's the mega deed that we declare. And Peter finds his mission in life. Peter finds his mission in life in teaming up with God, in teaming up with the spirit that dwells in him. And he's inviting you and I to join him in that same mission. You see, the spirit of God is being poured out on some of the most unlikely candidates in this passage, on a Mesopotamian mill worker. On a Phrygian fisherman, on an Egyptian engraver, on a thyre tire and garment tire. Everyone, young and old, women and children, man, butcher and banker, everyone is invited into his mission. Everyone is invited. Every one of us, everyone there and everyone today that has the Spirit of God in them, that is, has accepted that hope. Can you see that Pentecost? That Acts chapter 2, what happens here, has, has the, the potential, the propensity to save us from the tyranny of me, the tyranny of ourselves, from the tyranny of our narcissism and our vanity in our culture today, so that we can begin to see others, and we can begin to see ourselves, so we can begin to see our, our world through the lens of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who works both to create and to sustain and to redeem our world. You see, his spirit comes to empower us to declare and to live his good news through our words and through our deeds. And he's calling us in and he's inviting us to be a part of that. There's no greater mission. And that's what he, get, he gives us. When you ask Christ into your life and his spirit comes upon you, he invites you to be a part of the greatest mission of all time. I read a book a couple of years ago called The Narcissism Epidemic. Maybe you've read it or you've seen it. But, but the writer talks about how we not only suffer from narcissism in our culture, we actually embrace it, we celebrate it, we love it, we promote it. And so some narcissists actually have their name on everything. And, they, and uh, uh, you know, Ted Turner said, I would be perfect if I only had a little bit of humility. You know, and so, I mean, we're just totally focusing ourselves. Maybe you heard the, the hokey joke, you know, the, the light bulb jokes. How many, how many uh, narcissists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Do you know that one? One and the rest of the world revolves around them. Okay, come on. That, but that's the world we live in. Where we think the world revolves around us. The, and, and God invites us out of that. He gives us this outside force, this inclination to say, there's something more. It's not just about me. It's about the mission of God. And he invites me into something more. To get out of my self-absorbed nature and to be a part of something greater than me. And so maybe, maybe the shared office space and the club that I belong to in the city, maybe, maybe that space is not just a comfortable place for me to do work. It is, but maybe it's a place where God wants me to live out his mission, where he wants me to love and build relationships with other that need, others that need 
to hear the good news that need the hope of Christ in their lives. And maybe, maybe the fact that God has given you opportunity, the job that he gave you, or the country club that he allows you to be a part of, or, or the gym that you're able to pay a membership for, maybe God has you there not just so that you can work out or so you can relax. Maybe God has you there not just so you can have a career and provide for money, but maybe God has you there because he wants you to be a part of his mission. Maybe he has you there because there's people that need the hope of Christ. You see, I think that God had you and me born for such a time as this, that God placed you in your workplace, in your school, in your community, in your family, because he wanted you, because he's called you. He's placed you there because he's called you and because he desires to work in you and through you to share the hope that you have within, the hope that's changed you. That's what he calls us to. That's what he gives us the opportunity to be a part of. Do you feel like there's gotta be more in this life? Do you have that lingering feeling some of the time that there must be something more to life? I mean, so many things point to it. Maybe, maybe you'd say you're here today, you're, you're, you're not even a Christian, but you're exploring faith. Do you have that lingering feeling that makes you want to explore it? I mean, there's this sense in all of us of right and wrong, right? We want justice. We might differ on what justice is, but we all want justice. And there's this sense in us that there has to be something more, like there has to be a love. There has to be, there has to be, a place, a person that I, can ex- that I can be accepted for who I am with all my bumps and my bruises and my brokenness, somebody that would love me for who I am. And we actually live going out as if that exists. We go and we look for that love. And we all have this desire for things of beauty. And so, you know, we plant flowers and you know, our, our youngest daughter, Ariana, is an artist. And we, you know, we went last weekend to her art exhibit. We like things of beauty. We like going to art exhibits. We like music and theater and, and, and all these things of beauty because we have this sense that there's, some, there's meaning in things. There's some kind of meaning that's outside of ourselves. And I would say that all of this points to the existence of a transcendent God that created you and me with meaning. And he desires that we would experience the meaning in him and that we'd help others experience that meaning in him. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, he says this, he says, God is the one who satisfies the passion for justice, the longing for spirituality, the hunger for relationship, the yearning for beauty, the God, the true God. And God, the true God, is the God we see In Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Israel's Messiah, the world's true Lord. And I would say the world's true hope. You see, God has called us to his mission to share that hope. We have the opportunity. All of us, all these desires that we have in us for something more, they point to one that put them there, to Jesus, the resurrected one, the hope of the world. It's not just a cruel joke of the universe that you have those feelings, folks, in your hearts. It's because God is alive and he wants us to know him. And he wants us to help others know him. And that leads to the third point that could go without saying, but I think it's important to say that God's spirit gives us salvation through Jesus. That the good news is for you and me also. 
God's spirit gives us salvation through Jesus. We're a part of his mission to go out and to share the gospel, but don't miss the fact that God's mission is, is to work in us. He desires to save us. He is saving us. God's plan is wonderfully, wonderfully inclusive, and it's also wonderfully focused on each individual, each person on this world. He desires that none would perish. And, and it happens to all who, in verse 21, it says, call in the name of the Lord. Have you called in the name of the Lord? Have you, have you called in the name of Jesus? Is he your savior? If not, I'd encourage you to consider that today for yourself. And here's a side note, though. Here's, here's one of the many instances where the phrase, the name of the Lord, appears. And that phrase, when it says, call in the name of the Lord, that... Jews in that day didn't say the name of the Lord. They wouldn't say it out of reverence for God. So when it says the name of the Lord, it's talking about Yahweh. In this passage, as many passages in the Gospels are connecting Yahweh and Jesus. Jesus is God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He is the hope of the worlds. But back to salvation. What is this salvation that he references? All will be saved here, this salvation. Well, it certainly means that we have eternal hope. When you ask Christ in your life, you have that eternal hope. Salvation, being seated in Jesus and having our eyes in heaven, it certainly means that. But it also means that God, it means that, that God desires us to live in Jesus in the present. Salvation is for the here and the now. You see, Peter encourages his listeners to call on the name of the Lord so that you can experience his salvation as a present transformative reality, something that'll change your life for now and, for, and also for that future hope. If these are really the last days that Luke says they are in this passage, then he's telling us that salvation has begun Salvation is here in Jesus. Salvation is here for today. And if you put your life in Christ, salvation is for now and it's for the future. You see, God gives us salvation. He gives salvation to all who call on the name of Jesus. And he gives it to them for eternity, but he also gives it to them for today. And in Matthew, God promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us as we join him in his mission. Do you see what this means? Do you see what this means? It means that as Christians, we don't just look to eternity as a place that we receive salvation. We live into our salvation today. Being a Christian is not just something as, that has futuristic implications. It impacts us in this moment, in this day, in this place today. And so we live with a humble hope. We live with a humble hope. What, what do I mean by that? Well, 2 Corinthians 122, Paul calls this pouring out of, of the Holy Spirit a first installment. It's a first installment. He says, putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as a first installment. Uh, a couple months ago, Teresa and I bought a new house in, in Malvern. We moved out there. And if you've ever gone to a, a, a house closing, you, you go in, you sign a bunch of papers, and, and then uh, after you're done with the papers, signing the papers, they give you a set of keys to your new home, right? When, if you've went through that experience, when we went through the experience, do you think we said, well, we can't move in our house yet? 
Um, we don't really, it's not really ours. I mean, we got a mortgage and everything else. No, we take possession of it immediately. It's ours. We live in it. We, we take this gift that we have now. And so we're, we're to live tasting what's to come, the new heaven and the new earth. We, when, when you become a Christian, all that the Spirit has for you in here in Luke chapter, in, 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 Luke, in Luke's words here in, in the book of Acts, all of it's available to us. And so we take possession of it. And it's telling us to live into this humble hope. But it's a process for us as people. What we experience now is just a down payment. We're not perfect people. It doesn't take very long to realize that when you become a Christian, uh, you, still have to, you still have struggles. You still struggle with selfishness or with pride or with uh, me when I'm driving into Philadelphia, impatience some of the time, okay? Or, or we're distrusting as people and we have brokenness and it takes time for those things to change. But they can change. They can change. And the fact of the gospel is that, that we, we need to remember that we live in the overlap of the now and the not yet. So as Christians, don't get caught up in the trap of thinking that I should have everything perfect now in my life. It doesn't take very long for us to, to realize as followers of Christ that's not the way it works. But also don't get caught up in the trap of cynicism where you think, well, there's no hope for me today. I'm, I'm going to continue to be an impatient person, a greedy person, a selfish person, a prideful person. When I get to heaven, God will change all those things. No, God desires to work in you here and now, and it's a process. We need to live in the overlap of the now and the not yet and allow God's salvation to change us now so we live with this humble hope. We don't, and so we give up our selfish or we give up our, our small ambitions because we know that God sent his spirit. God sent his spirit. Uh, you know, let, let me say this in closing. Let me ask you this question. So, we do risky things, okay? We do risky things, but like building bridges as we walk across them as Christians, but we don't do them because Jesus, we, we do them because Jesus rose from the dead, because he sent his spirit. We don't do them in our own strength. We do them because Pentecost happened, because we believe that God can change us he has changed us and he can change any person and he can change a community, he can change a church because he's changed me and he's changed you. And so whatever the spirit touches can be transformed. And so, and so we, can, we go out and live in that hope. And so here's the question for you. When was the last time that God asked you to do something risky or something adventuresome? How did you respond? You know, scientists have, have done studies on 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 humans, and, and they, they tell us that some people are genetically predisposed, they're predisposed, boy, I can't say that word today, predisposed, okay, to be risk takers. Some of us are predisposed to be risk takers. They have an abundance of a chemical called GABA in their bodies, gamma amniobutyric acid. And so these kinds of people require vast amounts of risk, vast amounts of just, you know, crazy things to do so they don't get bored. So they like to jump out of planes and, and go to karaoke bars and, and do like I, like I had the opportunity to do uh, last month and go up in hot air balloons at six o'clock in the morning with 120 of your friends. I mean, they, they need those kinds of things to experience life. But people on the opposite end of the spectrum are risk avoiders. They have low levels of GABA in their systems. 
And so these are the kinds of people that break out in a cold sweat during a Scrabble game. Now, all of us live somewhere in between in that continuum. We can't change the level of GABA that we have in our systems. It's genetic. But when God prompts you, you can take the step towards his call. That could mean introducing yourself to, to a neighbor. It could mean inviting a friend from work or school to come to church or to an event at church with you. It could mean speaking the truth and love to a friend. It could mean, mean telling your story, your testimony of how you met Jesus to a friend. It could mean starting to support a missionary for the first time. And why take the risk? Why step out? Because you humbly embrace the hope. Because you humbly embrace, embrace the hope of Christ that's in you. Because you desire to follow him. And so how, how do we respond? I would say, man, live into his mission. Live into God's mission for your life. Be a part of his mission. You have all that it takes now. Be like the woman at the well in John chapter four that just went out and, and she met Jesus. Jesus told her her story, told her who he was and what does she do right away? She runs back to the town and she tells everybody about that she just met the Messiah. I don't care if you've been a Christian for one year or a hundred years, God is calling you and God's given you everything you need to be about his mission. And then maybe the other thing you can do, like Paul says all the time, maybe start supporting a missionary, like, like Shankar last week, or like the Melbournes in the back, or all the other missionaries we have in the tables back there. But support them through prayer, and support them through, through your time. Support them through your resources. Get to know them. Let me pray for you.